Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior, and welcome to another Tactical Tuesday. Although this is going to be a little bit different because today we are going to do a longer form interview. We do is as two for Tuesdays tend to run. Have another Tactical Tuesday here that is a short snippet from today's episode, giving you more insight into our guest, Allison Archimbo, president of EarthSpark International. Hey, if this is your first time tuning in here to Suncast, thank you so much for lending us your time, the only non-renewable resource that you possess. I'm so grateful that you've wandered by our way, whether you were referred or whether you discovered us online. We're grateful that you're giving us some time. I'd love to hear from you. You can check out more of these episodes not only in your podcast player but at mysuncast.com and i'm super active over on linkedin and twitter at nico mayo on twitter and obviously nico johnson suncast media on linkedin hope you'll check us out over there well today's entrepreneur is no stranger to not just business in the developing world but also bridging the gap between for-profit business development and sales and nonprofit fundraising and growth. It's an honor to be able to introduce Allison Archambault and the work of EarthSpark on this Giving Tuesday. And I hope that you'll take a chance to really listen to how Allison developed not just her career, but the organization that she's been leading now for a decade, providing light access opportunity and what she refers to as feminist electrification to the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Allison has won notable awards like Momentum for Change from the United Nations and the coveted Explorer Award from National Geographic. (laughs) I would love to be an explorer myself. To hear that and more about how EarthSpark is elevating opportunity and changing the world in their corner of the market and even how they're spinning out profitable companies like SparkMeter. Stay tuned. And hey, if you really dig these kinds of episodes, well, I think that you would love to check out the more than 300 additional founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. And of course, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, then why don't you just press pause right now, click subscribe. If you're in iTunes, go ahead and click rating and review. I'll wait for you. Those ratings and reviews not only make me feel good about the work we're doing, but they also let other people find us. And that is so important. As we go into a new year and expand to bigger audiences, I'm so grateful for all of you who tune in. So with that in mind, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, we're going to jump in here to what I expect will be a very interesting, exciting, storytelling hour of fun, exploring the life and times of an entrepreneur who for a decade has been fighting the good fight on the nonprofit side with her organization, EarthSpark International, as we mentioned in the introduction. Fun fact, about two years ago, I noticed that Allison Archambault was a speaker at EarthX Solar, the the popular now online uh, event that happens every year down in Austin. And I got intrigued and I reached out to her and asked her to jump on my then fledgling podcast and she stayed on our our dartboard of people that we really wanted to wrangle into uh, guest ship on our on our show, and it took two two full years. So what you're about to hear is the triumph of the tome. Try try again. It is not for Allison dodging us. It is just simply that life happens, and uh, you just got to keep trying. So for all of you out there who believe that uh, it's worth pursuing conversations like these. Uh, I submit an interview with Allison Archambault of EarthSpark for your listening pleasure. Allison, welcome to Suncast. Thank you, Nico. I am thrilled to be here. And I think uh, the universe was just waiting for this moment for us to have this conversation. 
It's true. It's true. You know, I think the one thing that I mentioned in the intro as well is that it is giving Tuesday. And I feel very, very confident that one of the reasons that we were delayed in the way that we were is because I didn't even think of having an episode on giving Tuesday until last year, Christina Skirka recommended it to me. And, and you and I didn't think of it until much later in our dialogue about how and when we should do this interview. So I'm looking forward to folks learning about EarthSpark, but also I think that you have a fantastic story. Let me give a little bit of an introduction, a little more of an introduction. Allison is president of EarthSpark International. We'll talk about that a bit. She's the president, not the founder. That'll be part of the story. EarthSpark is driving systems change for electricity access in rural Haiti. Partnering with towns that don't have electricity, EarthSpark builds solar-powered electric grids to energize homes and power local industry. We're going to talk all about feminist electrification, winning lots and lots of awards and grants. We're going to talk about the work that you're doing to empower not only folks in developing countries, but also a change in the way that we see energy access and equity. You also have a really cool habit of spawning interesting businesses that you spin out of uh, an otherwise singularly, singularly pointed uh, nonprofit. Spark Meter is one of those. We'll talk about that. But I'd like to go all the way back to a trip you made, I believe, to France at a time when we didn't take the Oracle, also known as Google, for granted as the single place where we could find all things useful. And help me and those who've stuck through this abnormally long introduction with the origins of how you began to journey down the path of clean energy and, and why you ended up working for companies like Gridpoint, 3Tier, and EarthSpark. Well, Nico, thanks for asking. I uh, was a lowly undergraduate doing my junior year abroad in uh, Paris, France, uh, in the most beautiful apartment I will probably ever live in. I was really wrestling with this challenge that someone had given me about what I was passionate about. Someone had said, if you're going to do a senior thesis, you really need to choose something you're passionate about. And I'm sure they just said that as a throwaway comment, but to me, it really stuck to my bones. And I thought, what am I passionate? You know, I'm passionate about so many things. I'm passionate about bicycles and food and people. And you know, what, what's the one thing? Cause they said, you, you know, choose the thing you're passionate about. You're going to lose a year to, of your life to this topic. And at the time, <laughs> at the time, a year of my life focusing on one thing seemed like a very big commitment. <laughs> Indeed. It's like in the 20th of your life. Yeah. So, um, I was really wrestling with this and I, didn't have any furniture in that very nice apartment, but I did have this little stool on which my computer was sitting and I was sitting on the floor and I went to this newfangled thing that I'd heard about and it was called Google. It was like this, you know, amazing thing on the internet where you could put in questions and it would give you answers, <laughs> otherwise known as a search engine. But at the time there was this mystique around this, like to our generation, it was the magic eight ball. <laughs> it was incredible. So I was like, all right, this thing knows. Let me let me give it a shot. And so I put in, I typed into my Google search engine on my enormous chunky laptop on a stool in an empty apartment in France, international relations, economics, and public health, because those were the three things that I was studying in college. And then I put in environment in French, because those were always two additional things that were sort of core to, to me. And then I hit search and I, um, you know, discovered what I was passionate about, sort of. It, it popped up with like solar ovens in Mali, West Africa. And I was like, well, I guess this is it. <laughs> and uh, I started reading about solar ovens in Mali, West Africa. And it turned out that wasn't the technology that was like really mine. I wasn't really that excited about it. But in one of those articles, it was mentioned that the... French utility was putting money into a project doing rural solar electrification in Mali, West Africa. And that to me sounded actually really interesting. And it turned out I was sort of passionate about rural solar electrification. And I did my thesis on uh, the institutional politics of rural solar electrification in Mali, West Africa. And, you know, at the time I felt like I was uncovering this like scoop because I, I went to Mali and I was like, wait a minute, the the international institutions are not talking to each other. They're all focused. There are all these programs focused on electricity and getting people electricity. Uh, but like 
the UN Environment Program had a program and the UN Development Program had a program. Then there was this Electricity of France thing that was different. And there was this one amazing nonprofit that was actually doing the work and nobody was talking to them. And it was just like, and then the World Bank swooped in uh, with a different program, but they weren't really coordinating. And I thought that was crazy. And I wrote it all up and then I sort of, you know, have lived my life and I realized, oh, that's just sadly the the way that the world works is like it's not actually efficient or well coordinated yeah especially in the nonprofit ngo world oh and the i mean the international institutions and and all of it so uh that got me into you know the tech side i stopped doing i was doing a public health sort of bolt-on degree and i just got really into electricity because i felt like it was the nexus of everything i cared about whether it was health or economy or you know international relations, all those other things, environment. And then I, you know, I got really into energy and electricity because it's, uh, it's so nested at the center of, of all of these different issues. That is fascinating. And you finished your thesis. It, it may well be Richard who suggested that I reach out to you in all fairness, but at some point you met one of my mentors and friends, Richard Hansen. Tell me about your experience with Richard in the Dominican Republic. Richard is, as you know, is an incredible visionary and a super generous soul. And I was trying to figure out rural solar electrification and I was living in Boston and I found one other organization that was doing rural solar electrification. And uh, it wasn't in West Africa, but it was, you know, a way, somebody doing something similar to what I needed to learn about for my thesis. And so I, um, I was so nervous, uh, but I, uh, remember, having this need to contact so loose. Finally I did. And, and they responded right away. John Rogers and Richard Hansen were both so gracious in inviting me in. And they gave me, <laughs> they actually were really gracious. They said, sure, come out and talk to us. And I wanted to intern for them. And we all know that interns who don't know anything are not helpful. right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. And I didn't know anything. And so they very graciously said, sure, well, you, uh, you know, you're working in, like, you're, you want to work in West Africa, you speak French. We're actually thinking about doing something in Haiti at the time. Our focus is in the Dominican Republic and Honduras, but we have some potential business in Haiti, and we need this really thick installation manual translated from English and Spanish into French. Can you do that for us, please? So it was this, like, homework assignment that, you know, is like, if you pass this test, <laughs> then we'll let you hang around. And um, I, it, it wasn't a simple, it wasn't a simple manual. It was like, I remember this phrase, tighten the serrated wing nut. And I was like, what's a serrated wing nut? Like, yeah. I didn't know how to say this in English. What a great learning environment for you, though. You had to learn all the literal nuts and bolts. The literal nuts and bolts. Yeah. So um, I, uh, I pulled in some like other friends who were like technical French speakers. And uh, the next week on my Wednesday or whatever, I showed up with my document and I slid it across the desk and, uh, and they let me stay. So I got to show up and learn from them about rural solar electrification. And, um, you know, it was pay-as-you-go solar. They were doing pay-as-you-go solar before. Um, for anybody. <laughs> before <laughs> it about. was a phrase. Yeah, yeah. It was exactly. It was like, for those, for those who are unfamiliar, by the way, Soluz is an organization that Richard Hansen founded or co-founded down in Honduras, have done work in Honduras, Dominican Republic, a lot of places in the Caribbean. Just want to make sure that those who heard Richard and Soluz, that's what that is. Yeah. So after I graduated, I actually applied for a Fulbright and I was so excited about going back to Mali and doing more solar electrification, just really digging deeper into the topic that I was so passionate about. I didn't get the Fulbright and I didn't have a backup plan. And I was just like totally flat footed. And um, so I kept showing up at Soluz. <laughs> Pretty soon, very kindly, Richard said, uh, you know, it's not West Africa, but I could use some help in the Dominican Republic. Is there any chance that you might consider going down there and helping me out? And it was definitely, I used to say that it was the hardest job I've ever had. And that was true until I became a working mom. It was really hard. We had a peso crisis and a political crisis and it was challenging, but it was also a wonderful way to learn the sector and um, work with some fabulous people. You spent some time around the time of, of Soluz between Soluz and, and your next gig, as I recall, 
making billboards in Florida linking climate change to hurricanes? It's true. Yeah. So if I was going to be really generous with myself on the days, you know, my, my later days in the DR, I was thinking, well, you know, it, it's hard going right now, but we're building a model that can be replicated in other places. And, you know, it's, it's changing the world. But I'm on a normal day, I was like, we are banging our heads against a wall. And this, you know, all of my energy is going into this effort that's just me throwing myself against a wall that is not moving. And it was the time of the, uh, the 2004 elections. So I thought, as an American who cares about climate change, uh, I could keep doing what I was doing, but I could also try to go back to the States and have some sort of an impact on the outcome of that election. And that seemed bigger to me. And I felt this like weird patriotic, like I need to get back there and do something about this. This is my responsibility. I moved to DC, was sort of just, you know, trying to figure out how to be helpful and ended up lucking into an incredible group of people called Environment 2004. And uh, yeah, nobody was talking about climate in 2004. And we uh, had the first billboards that were linking, you know, addressing climate change in a, uh, in a presidential election. And we took out space. Trying to turn them swing states. Love it. Well, exactly. We took out space in Florida. Amy Christensen was in charge of uh, Environment 2004, and she was amazing. You know, I learned that like individual people have say over what you can say on a billboard. So in some places we had like climate change, like George Bush doesn't get it. And then the pictures of all these different, and in some places the, the billboard owner would say like George Bush, what doesn't, you can't say that, but you could say George W. It was all very like strangely individually edited by the owner of the billboard. But you know, it was, it was like, quite controversial at the time. And uh, I think Amy ended up on Fox News defending the billboards and talking about climate change, which, you know, sounds very reasonable now, but at the time it was quite cutting edge. So fun fact, some folks might uh, maybe don't, maybe don't recognize Amy Christensen, but some listeners to this show will certainly recognize, um, even if they don't recognize Environment 2004, the COO of Environment 2004, Miranda Ballantyne, (laughs) who now runs Reba. So there you go, proof positive that Environment 2004 uh, birthed what I can consider to be two amazing female leaders uh, who are passionate about not only renewables, but climate change. I don't know if you know this about Miranda, but she too has a, a background in rural solar electrification. No way. Can you get, yeah. can you get Miranda on Suncast? Um, we can email her. Oh boy. See. Here we go. This would be fun. Everybody that knows Miranda out there, go ahead and send, uh, send her an email on our behalf as well. So that when... Allison and I gang up on her. She'll, she'll gladly join. Miranda, if you're listening, I really want you on Suncast. <laughs> I didn't know that she has a rural, a rural electrification story. Um, yeah, she does. Perhaps she'll come on Suncast and tell us. Allison, I am sure I'm not the only one here who is sensing someone who loves to leverage that passion and is a bit of a rabble rouser and someone who won't let folks get away with things. That's one of the things that stuck with me when you were telling me more of your story when we first got a chance to to chat. And I love the story about how you got your job at Gridpoint when you met David Gerard in DC. Would you be willing to tell how that unfolded? Sure. David Gerard was an amazing thinker and friend. But the way I met him was it was Environment 2004 days and I was working all hours. And DC is kind of fun because you know you get these little groups that are like young professionals in something. And I hadn't been doing any of that because it was heads down, save America. (laughs) And I got this one invitation and it was about, it was somebody from World Resources Institute talking about energy and the environment and climate. I decided, okay, this is the day. This is the one day I'm going to like not leave the office at 2 a.m. I'm going to go and I'm going to do something fun with a young professionals in DC group. And so this amazing visionary got up and started talking about energy and climate and the environment. And he said, we're going to be on coal for the next 30 years. And I thought, oh no, this is, (laughs) this is not thought leadership. This is not okay. Like we can't be on coal for the next 30 years. Unfortunately, it was a while ago and we're still using coal, but he may have been right, but I was incensed that this thought leader would come up and say, we're going to be on coal for the next 30 years. And so after the talk, it was at a bar. It was at 18th Street Lounge, which sadly just closed. There were a lot of 
this happens at a lot of these DC things is you know, a lot of people going and had their resumes ready and like <laughs> said, I really liked your talk. And, and anyway, I'm looking for a job. And I thought I'm going to go get a drink because this is a bar. Um, seems like, you know, we're not going to, you know, he's like surrounded by people. So a little bit later, I saw him going out the door and I are about to go out the door. And I said, you know, 30 years, 30 years on coal. That, that seems like we can't have that be okay. And, and that was the beginning of, uh, of our conversation. And, and you know, I mean, he was right, right? I mean, he was right. We talked about how it was not okay. And it was not okay for thought leaders to be up here saying, you know, giving everybody a pass that like the status quo is all right. And it's going to stick around for decades. And you know, from that, then uh, he too was interested in rural solar education. So we talked about my background and turns out that he had just, um, you know, invested in a, a small startup company that uh, was the precursor to Gridpoint. And uh, he put me in touch with the, the then CEO and it was my dream job come, come true after uh, the election didn't sadly go the way that we were hoping it would. So, you know, I mean, it, it's sort of a lesson in uh, honesty and candor. And also credit to David for not just saying like, who in the world are you? Yeah. <laughs> who do you think <laughs> you are? Like idiot 20 year old. It's like telling me I'm wrong. Oh um, no, he really received that and appreciated it, which I, uh, I super appreciate. I'm sure there were multiple times through your tenure at Gridpoint and then later three tier that we were in the same conference hall for sure. I remember the, the Gridpoint machine which essentially was like the precursor to kind of the, the smart load center, the smart home battery storage, right? The uh, many companies are attempting. It's like um, the Tesla Powerwall, but smarter. It's just yeah, very it's, expensive and in 2005. <laughs> yeah, and the size of a refrigerator. Um, an elegant appliance, Nico, mm-hmm. an elegant appliance. Absolutely. I'm sure that you've had to practice that a lot. <laughs> um, what did you learn about consumer energy through your time at Gridpoint and then later at Three Tier, that helps you think about the way we use electricity today. Oh my gosh, I got to learn so much about how I mean, solar plus storage plus energy management works, and like in a in a box that is a microgrid, right? It's it's a islandable energy system. So so just that basic is actually really important. And then we were at the beginning of the the smart grid time, right? And so we were sort of the darlings of smart grid um, while also sort of getting to help define it, it felt. Steve Hauser came over and was director of policy at Gridpoint. He's a real visionary. And, you know, I was just learning as I went. I ended up being in charge of the Renewable Energy Partners Program, which basically meant that from 2005 to 2009, I think, I was meeting all of the solar installers in the country. And that, that time period was super interesting because it went from being this like real tie-dye industry to, you know, the 2008, like all the business suits showed up and just to be there and, and have gotten to know the, the players and, and watch the industry sort of move through that process. I actually think like microgrids are in that transition right now, right? <laughs> I like to think microgrids are. We are right where Resi Solar was was back then. So that was exciting and interesting. And it gave me the ability to really think about smart meters and energy management in a way that very much informs my work now. On the three-tier side, this like being able to forecast and manage, you know, what the generation side is going to look like, just just like thinking about how grids work and how renewable energy plays into that. And it was really, you know, new working with, you know, PhD meteorologists, supercomputer people. But at the end of the day, it's like, how, how should society define, use information to define systems that, you know, are reliable and serve people? And that's something that, you know, we should always go back to first principles of what are we trying to do and then use information to get there, right? Absolutely. For those who are unfamiliar, three-tier was and remains one of the preeminent met data, meteorological data companies. If you're familiar with our uh, conversations with clean energy or clean power research, 
Um, they're a similar company from a data perspective. Mo- mostly we're focused on the wind market and South Retier kind of became well-known in the industry. It was a stepping stone for you. I mentioned earlier that EarthSpark is not a company that you founded, but what I didn't mention is that you've been at the helm of EarthSpark for a decade. It's a lifetime in solar years. And I'd love to understand how someone who is very clearly doing well and involved in the private sector makes the decision to switch over to a not-for-profit back into that international market work. I have my suspicions, but how did that come about? So, I mean, to be totally candid, I uh, I was laid off from three-tier because... Uh, <laughs> Though my uh, my work with Ken Westrick, who's the, the CEO there, I was like the DC office for three tier. And the DC office wasn't doing anything that was going to bring in revenue in the next quarter. And sadly, the investors really were focused on revenue in the next quarter, not on the like bigger picture. How do we like inform countries and you know, policymakers about how how this information can and should be used? Um, and grid analytics, man, Ken Westrick is like out there doing really interesting grid analytics stuff right now. And um, it's, it's awesome. He should be on your show too. He really should. I, I literally just made a note, reach back out to Ken and get him on the show. So when I was at Conergy, Ken and I got to know each other and he was doing a lot of work in Colombia and I was doing a lot of work in Latin America. And yeah. we, I don't know, like it totally fell off my radar. I'm going to have to reach back out to Ken. So there's two now. We got to get you back on the, we got to get you on the show, Ken. We'll for sure have Ken tagged in the, in the show. Cause we try to, we try to let folks know if they, if they show up as a, as a mention in the show, but uh, Ken is an, I mean, Ken is on a different level, intellectual genius. Definitely. So I got laid off and I was like, well, what do you mean? I got laid off ever since I moved back from the DR, uh, the Dominican Republic, I uh, <laughs> had been doing something super interesting. There was environment 2004 and then grid point and then tier, And it was like, I had a fancy business card in DC, or at least in my mind I did. And so I always felt like I walked into a room with great confidence because I was walking in with this logo, whatever the business card was. And like, I'm this thing. And also, hey, I'm Allison. And that I didn't have any business card. <laughs> I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, I, how, I have no identity. I don't have a business card. I live in DC. I, how can I do anything? <laughs> and so then I did what? was the obvious thing to do. I started my own business so I could print business cards and I could have an identity again. (laughs) You asked earlier, what is Fresh Generation? Fresh Generation is the one woman consulting shop that I started in 2009. So I could print up a business card and have a logo and, you know, have some sense of self other than, uh, you know, just the human being that I am. (laughs) So, you know, I'm saying this laughing now, but uh, it, it was a good humbling moment to realize that, you know, we, we all needed, or I clearly needed to peel back some layers and realize that at the core, there is a real person. <laughs> yeah. Who, um, I, I want to, I actually want to pause there for a second because there, I feel like there are so, so many folks in, I'll say of us in our industry who invariably go through as you and I did the downsizing of an organization where the skills or perhaps the focus area that you're directing your attention towards are no longer prioritized or they they don't fit within the investment thesis or whatever. Like you get, you get let go, you lose that sense of identity or self. Uh, A little uh, sort of LinkedIn hack is if you see something uh, which says from some time in the past to present, like Sparrow Ventures does for me, like Fresh Generation does for you. It's very, very likely a, a sign that they were a consultant or remain a consultant. Um, because it turns out when you start your own business, you never have to close it. You just have to pay the state to, to keep it open. I find a lot of folks in our industry, they, they sort of brush it under the rug because they leverage that consulting experience for another job, which is totally normal. And then they never talk about it again. So I appreciate you bringing that up and actually giving insight into how uh, it made you feel, because that's something that people just don't talk about, like losing that shield. I've been through the same experience. It's real. It's a real human experience. It's good to share it. I was able to leverage my uh, <laughs> new consulting company. I mean, I basically went to Kent, to back to three tier and said, well, all the stuff that we were doing was super interesting. Um, how about if we just do it under a consulting contract? And they became my first, my first client, which was awesome. You know I mean? I could still do the work. They just didn't pay the like fancy DC office, which was 
fine, but I was still open for clients. And one of the people who uh, was working for one of the funders of three tier at the time, Richenda Van Leeuwen, who also should be on your show. And it's also amazing. Richenda Van Leeuwen, she, um, I call her the fairy godmother of energy access. She really created the connective tissue across the space, really has nurtured a lot of folks who are working in energy access and renewables, clean energy. She's at Andy now, the Aspen Development Network, the Aspen Network of Development Entrepreneurs. And she's just amazing. So anyway, she knew that I was open for more clients and she recommended that I get in touch with some some punk kid that uh, had started some nonprofit working in Haiti. And it was right after the uh, 2010 earthquake that had struck Port-au-Prince. And I knew for certain that the last thing that Haiti needed was some American do-gooder organization to show up and help Haiti. So I really deprioritized making the phone call but out of respect for Regenda, you know, she's an amazing mentor. So I, you know, I got in touch with the founder, Dan Schnitzer, um, now CEO of SparkMeter, one of the companies that we've spun off together. So he founded EarthSpark. He founded EarthSpark, yeah. How about that? He was leaving to do his PhD, looking for someone to run EarthSpark. I set up a very quick, I, was, I remember I was sitting in my friend's car in California and I said, hey, I'm going to make a really quick call. I'll be in in like five minutes. And I got on the phone with Dan and it was a courtesy call. But then I started talking to him and I said, Hey, you know, you're doing solar lanterns. Like those are life changing tools, but have you ever thought about microgrids? Everybody aspires to electricity that can turn a motor that can run refrigeration that can do more than the small stuff. And he said, yeah, of course I've talked to, thought about microgrids and we just really hit it off. And from that first conversation, we were talking about microgrids and it was clear that he hadn't just parachuted into Haiti after the earthquake. He'd been there working with communities before the earthquake and was very, very focused on this community centered design that yeah, I really admired. And, and it's, I signed up for six months to help him find somebody who could take the organization on longer term. And that was over 10 years ago. So uh, there are two lessons there. One, Dan is great to work with. And two, it's really slow moving to build microgrids in Haiti. I've been wondering, what's your least favorite solar asset management activity? You know, those daily, weekly, sometimes monthly deliverables that you just have to check off the list, but can be such a drag Well, let me tell you how to press the easy button and get going on the work that really matters by automating your invoicing and ticketing and reporting with PowerHub. Focus on the work that you want to do. Take the boring stuff off your plate with PowerHub. You can go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. Allison, I know it's been a decade, so there are highs and lows. I wonder... With regard to EarthSpark in particular, could be with the broader involvement that you're engaged in beyond EarthSpark, but what turned out better than you expected? I mean, I have to say my team. My team is the most amazing sense of collaboration, deep, joyful collaboration, even in the face of all the different stuff. It's just such a pleasure to be able to collaborate with the people I get to interact with on a daily basis. Can you tell me something that is true for you that very few people agree with you on? I'm a big believer in the electrification of cooking. And uh, I think both in the US and also you know, in Haiti, but microgrids and energy systems really pushing electrify everything towards um, the energy access world. People are starting to come, come along on that now, but uh, it's been a crazy idea for a very long time. I got to tell you, I spent the better part of the weekend in my spare time researching carbon steel pans mm. because as as we've discussed i am a huge fan as was your husband of cooking over over fire and in particular uh, cast iron we have pretty much everything we cook on is cast iron cast iron works it does but it's heavy and so i'm just looking at carbon steel as a better alternative uh, and i wanted to know very specifically does carbon steel work on uh, induction stoves and it does it does yeah <clears throat> we have we have some great steel frying pans i wonder how often you have to get into the weeds with folks just sort of going through the economics and just discussing why the electrification of everything matters in the context of like how difficult the original problem is, which is just to introduce, introduce electricity. 
Yeah. I mean, let's go back to your stove. Cause like everybody of course loves cooking on fire. There was a whole marketing campaign by the natural gas industry about it. Now you're cooking with gas. Right. Mm-hmm. And so everybody yep. thinks, Oh, this is the, the future, but it's uh, it's a fossil fuel that they are injecting carcinogens into the water supply to break up rocks in the earth, to pump that methane through leaking tubes to get to your gas, where to your gas stove. And then in your home where you and your family live, you're combusting that and it's bad for you. I mean, <laughs> I shouldn't have to make such a strong push that induction is better, but also I'll say induction is easier to cook with. It's nicer to cook with. You can boil water faster. It's clean. I mean, it's just like cleaner to wipe down. You don't have to go through the burner. It's just a surface. I mean, you know, from a health environment and convenience, ease of use perspective, all of it falls on the side of, yeah, go induction. It's better. Of course, you have to plan for it. it it's, you know, an expensive thing to swap out if you don't need to. And that's why this, that's why changing things out is such a long process. But if you're in the market for a new cooktop, go induction. I'm really curious to know as a nonprofit, having yourself worked in industry, as we discussed for quite a while, what do you see as the the core or like infrastructural hiring challenges that you face that maybe don't exist in the not in the for-profit side of our business of deploying solar? I'm keen to understand if you see gaps that maybe don't exist in, in for-profit that that we could potentially help with. But where can we raise awareness for folks around the hiring needs of the industry for those folks that maybe would go work for a nonprofit, but they didn't realize it was an opportunity. One of the things that is an open dialogue with uh, amongst my team is what's fair um, in terms of compensation, what's fair in terms of you know, what people are asked to be doing. But you know, we work with a team in rural Haiti. Obviously the system is unjust, right? Like why, why are people in Haiti in general making so much less money than people in the United States? And how do you fairly build an organization that addresses not every injustice of the world perfectly, but also is cognizant of those injustices and tries to move the world gently in the, the right direction? So that's, I mean, that's an open question. If anybody has any brilliance <laughs> uh, or aha moments around that, uh, I'd welcome them. But I mean, we look at other institutions, you know, if they're even thinking about it, it seems like they're imperfect and imperfect solutions other than, you know, working to build a better world where economies are fair and um, people have what they need. And then we have a more mobile workforce and, you know, people can choose what they want to do. I will say that just because a nonprofit is a nonprofit, it shouldn't mean not saying it doesn't mean, but it shouldn't mean that people aren't earning enough to have a decent living. And so I think that's, funders are sort of coming around to that. The bigger nonprofits have been knowing this for a very long time, but small nonprofits oftentimes fall into the trap of, you know, I mean, there's so much need and why would you you capture more money for people's salaries or benefits when you know, man, another $10 could go so meaningfully to something else. On the flip side of that, you know, running an organization, we have an opportunity to do two things, an organization or a company. One is the output of the company for the customers you're serving. And the other is the output for the company for the people who are involved on the team. And I I believe that we really need to treat both with a real lens of social justice and make sure we're not sort of self-sacrificing and sacrificing the needs of our team members, ultimately to have a decent retirement, healthcare to um, push the the out, the external mission uh, farther. So that's a sustainability question on, uh, on organizations in general. Are there any skill sets that for you and in general, for your peers in the nonprofit sector, you would love to have but simply can't afford people where you're like, oh, I really wish we could hire this. And it's a common need in the industry. I'd love to sort of shine a light on that. And maybe we could figure out as an industry how to either divert funds towards that effort or some other creative mechanism. But from a career trajectory perspective, I hear folks all the time say, well, I'd love to work for insert nonprofit, but I just wouldn't be able to earn what I need to earn. But I think the interesting point there is you got RMI and WRI and even SEPA and SIA, where people earn a pretty decent living. And they're essentially on the backs of members and donors to help fund uh, that, but could you help eliminate where any gaps might be that 
we could think about? Well, I mean, I think there are certainly, I mean, I'm not living in Haiti right now and I'm still meaningfully contributing to my organization. There's unfortunately a lot of, you know, on this project finance side, what we're trying to pull together is a lot of desk work. We also are trying to keep our stateside roster very slim because the in the field work is all in Haiti and we need to be pushing resources there. On um, you know, that said, we need you know bookkeeping. I mean, just the stuff that like people don't think about. I mean, your audience, I'm sure, thinks about this all the time, but all the other stuff, the surrounding roles that are the the bookkeepers, the the project managers, the the folks who are interfacing with the um, the suppliers, who is going to be running the RFP process. I mean, fortunately, I work with incredibly brilliant people, and in every job description in Earthspark, it's sort of a running joke. But we always put and any and all other duties as required. <laughs> and you know, we're a tiny team that does all the stuff. But getting the the bookkeeping right, getting the project management right, getting the, I mean, the media, I mean, Nico, you're really good at this, but gosh, how do we tell our story in a coherent way while we're also trying to do the work? You know, and it's just figuring that out is, uh, and, you know, not only figuring it out, but getting it done is uh, a big important role that, you know, I think many nonprofits and companies, I think nonprofits aren't that different than companies. So that's one of the one of the things to think about is it's a tech status. It's not a shackle on the way, you know, the organization can operate. But institutionally, nonprofits run through this filter the same that you just presented, which is I could take back and pay this, this person 150000 or I could find someone with 70% of their skill set for 100000 and put that 50000 to work somewhere else. The, I think the capitalist question would be, well, great. What are you foregoing in efficiency and actual like market reach by putting that 50,000 to work locally versus finding the right person who could help you either find more financiers or create better media to get your message broader, right? It's a, it's a big trade-off and it's a job that you as the executive director have to think about on a regular basis. Yeah. The hard part, uh, and maybe, you know, maybe this is also the easy part, but the hard part is, is we can't make a better widget to get ourselves out of this issue. Fundamentally, you know, our money comes from the revenue of our customers, right? But it also, we want to keep tariffs as low as is reasonable. We want to make sure people are better off than they used to be. And people are saving 80% of their, you know, pre-grid energy budget. So we're definitely delivering on that. And there's room for, for some expansion on the customer revenue side. But like I said before, we also pull our funding from donors and international institutions. So, you know, it's just trying to make the model work for everybody. And when we invent stuff, it's, it's cool and wonderful. And we're trying to, you know, constantly build the better microgrid business model. You've invented a few things. We mentioned earlier, Dan and Spark Meter. Can you tell me a bit more about uh, where Spark Meter is at? I think you guys just raised a pretty nice round of investment. You spun it out. What does that look like to spin out a business that was incubated inside of EarthSpark and, and where's it, where's it going? Yeah. So EarthSpark is fundamentally sort of R&D shop that has these crazy ideas about energy poverty and how to solve it. And we work on solving energy poverty in rural Haiti. But when we do that, we pull in global best practices to solve the specific challenges we're facing. So town in Haiti didn't have any electricity. Microgrid seemed to be the answer. If you're building a microgrid from scratch in 20. 11, which is what, when we were getting started on this, it should be, I mean, this is just this obvious thing for Dan and me coming from the clean tech space. Like it should be clean, it should be efficient and it should be smart. So then just turn back to the problem and apply those criteria. And it turns out, yeah, of course, like solar panels exist and storage exists. There were no smart meters that were applicable to this market. There, some people were getting started with pay-as-you-go solar for DC, tiny like lanterns or solar home systems. Of course, the world of AMI exists, but those are complicated systems that cost a lot of money to deploy. And when you're building a grid, I mean, the, the caricature was Dan and me calling a bunch of different companies. Dan spent six months doing this. Hello, um, you know, metering company. 
we'd like to buy some meters for this process. And people would say, who's calling again? And we'd be like, Dan and Allison from EarthSpark International. (laughs) You know, they're like, what, a who? And then they'd say like, how many meters do you want? And we'd be like, at least 500 meters, right? Which is nothing. And then they'd be like, and where are you working? And we'd say like, rural Haiti. (laughs) And then then nobody was there, right? It was dead. Uh, Because nobody perceived that this was a market, like energy access, what is that? The cartoon is like, it's a bunch of poor people like who don't have electricity. Like that's not relevant to our business, which is a smart metering business for utilities. And so we really had to, you know, try to convince a bunch of different groups that no, this really matters. And it matters not only for the like justice element, but like it's a market. There are billions of people that don't have metered electricity. And then we had this aha moment of, uh, well, you know, I mean, we have brilliant friends. Uh, maybe we should just build these things and pull in our wonderful friends as volunteers and ultimately colleagues. And we spun it off because EarthSpark, EarthSpark and our friends hand soldered the first 50 meters in Nyphasai's living room in Boston. He's vice president of hardware now for, for Spark Meter. But, you, you know, I mean, then we had a 50 person pilot grid and then we got some funding to expand that grid to 500 customers. And I didn't want to solder another 450 meters by hand. And it didn't make sense to, because we didn't have this like robust customer service, you know, warranty giving apparatus. We were just, this is the proving what is possible part of what we do. And we actually always would have preferred just procuring meters that worked and were well supported. And so, you know, we had to create that entity so we could spin it off so we could then buy the stuff that we wanted to use. And it's worked really well. So like I said, we're now in 25 countries, Spark Meter is. Um, and I think it's you know, a great contribution to the microgrid space is that now smart meters are not a crazy wild idea. They're part of the core thinking around how you can approach a sustainable business model around microgrid operations. It's not sufficient to have smart meters, but it is essential. I love the, the complexity with which this problem had to be solved and the, uh, the fact that a lot of folks would go look for other companies they could partner with. Oh, we did. We tried. <laughs> Nobody would work with us. There's that, right? It's um, you're too small and the batch st- size doesn't work for us. Um, we see that all the time within Pico and micro and microgrid solar, not just in the Caribbean, but also in Africa uh, and even in you know, Bangladesh and Southeast Asia. It's too bad there's not. Uh, and this is a little bit of what Christina Skirka is working on for Energy for All, right? Is this sort of global cooperative where funds can be pooled and people can do bulk purchasing as a large incubator for these smaller entities. A lot of work that New Energy Nexus and Danny and John and that team are working on as well. And it's really exciting. I'm so glad to have learned through sort of the thread of us getting to know each other and doing this interview, how Dan, as a visionary, was able to bring uh, EarthSpark to bear and then SparkMeter, which he's now you know running uh, as the CEO, spun out as an organization that raised a ton of money and uh, is not just being used in microgrids. It's being used in macro grids, it's being used all over the world uh, in, for more than just liberating folks from darkness. I love that those kinds of chasms can be crossed with the intention of, and I would say only through the intention of intentional nonprofits like EarthSpark. You don't see corporations going after those kinds of small markets to create products uh, like SparkMeter, uh, which could revolutionize the way that energy is you know, being being managed, they're going after the really big problems that quote scale. So it's really encouraging to uh, to have a chance to to hear more about that story. I may have to have Dan on and talk more about the work that Spark Media is doing specifically. I'm curious because I feel like you do get a chance to see into the climate tech world a bunch through board membership of Spark Meter and and other fun th- fun stuff that you do. You probably get to tinker around with toys that many of us don't know are, are even available yet. What is some of the coolest climate tech that you've seen in the last 12 to, I don't know, 36 weeks? Well, you know, I love smart meters, but I think the thing that moved the needle the most in the last 12 weeks is the mail-in ballot. But to your technology question, if mail-in ballot isn't, uh, isn't high-tech enough for the, the audience, I love smart meters. I think grid analytics, I think, again, the low-tech version of 
actually engaging people. It's got to be low tech and high tech. So can we do time of use pricing? Can we do demand management? Can we do grid analytics so we can see where voltage is sagging? And can we do predictive energy modeling so we know what's going to be happening? All of these things come together in a very elegant system that also needs people to be involved. And I know that's controversial. I know everybody wants to set it and forget it, but let's meaningfully engage people in how it gets set up. I think that's really important. In fact, our uh, our third company, we spun off Spark Meter, spun off a Haitian microgrid operations company. And our third company is called Participant Power. That's the company that's doing the microgrid development scale up. And it's, you know, it's something I'm quite excited about. It's it's going from scratch and meaningfully engaging people in setting up these energy systems and then participating in them in a way that it doesn't feel possible or it doesn't feel as near at hand in established grids. But when you're defining electricity for the first time for communities, you get to define it in participatory ways and clean ways. And I think, you know, smart meters and grid analytics are totally essential and we have great tech behind that. But also we need to have the participatory systems through which we can really bring people into the dialogue of energy systems and how they work and how people are interconnected, if I'm allowed to get a little philosophical on you. For sure. Please do. Uh, are, are all of these, I suppose, smart meter I know is linked from uh, EarthSpark, is participant power as well? well? We're just launching it. So it's uh, it's sort of just like a, a, a title. Ultimately, EarthSpark is going to be managing these grids, but we needed to do the fancy blended finance thing and have a vehicle into which equity investors could put some equity. Sounds to me like another skill set that someone listening could contribute beyond their money is pro bono time. And I would posit that if more of us in this industry would, the way that I have and, and others have contributed to EarthSpark and other nonprofits, our time, we would see scale at a, uh, in, a, in a way that we haven't seen that radically impacts the lives of folks in developing countries. Because simply having someone who is a developer at name your company that's you know crushing it in the community solar market in Minnesota or you know building out hundreds of megawatts of CNI projects in New York having someone on that team at an engineering or a finance or a project development level just give an hour a week an hour a month of brain time to you and your team would be immensely meaningful oh yeah i'd love to have a broader network of advisors and people who can chip in for specific questions. I mean, whether that's like distribution system voltage requirements for the kinds of work that we're setting up, it uh, it does take us a lot of time to track down the answers to things that some people just know. So mm. I'm going to challenge the Suncast community here. We have our Suncast tribe. We have been dabbling back and forth with Circle and Mighty Networks and a few other places where we can sort of create our own LinkedIn for the solar professional. I know there are other communities that have tried to do this as well. I would love to see the Suncast Tribe come together in a way that we all meet regularly, as some of us already are prone to do on, on my Slack channel or on our Circle community uh, or even our Facebook group. How can we give Allison and other nonprofits you know, free access to that community and the ability to jump in there at any time and say, hey, Solar Warriors, we've got this real issue where uh, our finance team is ready to close on this round, but our finance model seems to be broken. We're not sure if it's working. I need somebody that's done, you know, a couple billion dollars worth of transactions. So just give me a glance at it. Can I borrow 15 minutes of your time? Or, hey, we need to procure 200 kilowatts of solar panels. And it seems like we can't get them because there's, you know, a four month backlog. Anybody got any overstock that we can buy down? Things like that are meaningful contributions that you know, Earthspark doesn't have to hire a full-time person for, and we as a community can contribute from the overage of our time, right? It's something that's really valuable and useful. And I don't think anybody is really doing that yet. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. I'd love that, Nico. Thank you for that idea. What do you believe is fundamentally holding back deployment of microgrids in developing nations? They're the easy questions, the easy answers there. It's the policy and the funding. Those are the things that are hard, right? Those are the superficial answers. The bigger answer, I think, is that we are not committed to doing this. We're not committed to solving 
climate and energy justice. Like we're, we're just not committed yet. And um, hopefully it's part of a culture shift that touches all parts of the world. And we start building systems that are fair. Do you have any particular author or book that for you has been meaningful in your own career and as such you regularly recommend it or even maybe gift it to others? Um, I mean, I really love natural capitalism. I haven't read it in a million years, Mm -hmm. but just this idea of going back to the first principles of what you're trying to do and build from there is one of the books that I like to recommend. Yeah. Natural capitalism was for those unfamiliar, it is the seminal book by Paul Hawken and Emery Levins written in the early part of this century. And it was, uh, it was one of the books that opened my mind to possibility of uh, green finance, of sustainable business models. Uh, it's an amazing, it's an amazing book. I'm glad that you brought that up. I don't know that anybody else has said natural capitalism in uh, So in I'm show. checking. It was also by Hunter Levins. Paul Correct. Hacken, oh, Amory goodness. Levins and Hunter Amory's Levins. wife, Hunter, or ex-wife. Um, Hunter. Yeah. And I mean, I, I read that book mostly by a flashlight in uh, my bedroom in the Dominican Republic. And in cockroaches were flying onto me. Mm. <laughs> it's just such a like oh. moment in my life where I had this portal into this great wisdom and it was a very memorable uh, environment in which to be consuming that wisdom as well. Well, this has been an amazing, fantastic journey. Before I let you uh, back into the wild, can you remind folks how they can engage with EarthSpark and if they feel so led on this or or any Giving Tuesday. And as the year comes to a close, uh, I would encourage folks to think about how they donate, not just from their treasure, but also from their time toward EarthSpark and organizations like yours. How could they find out more about your organization? Mm EarthSparkInternational.org is the website. We link to our Twitter and our Facebook page there. Mm, fantastic. And we'll do so as well on, on our uh, show notes page at mysuncast.com. And I presume you should have a big button there that says you can empower feminist electrification in Haiti through cr- clicking this button and connecting your credit card, something like that. It should say that. It just <laughs> says donate, but it should say. <laughs> well, this is, your this is why. Exactly. This yeah, is why. We, we the, it's, it's the little things, folks. Like I, I'm giving Allison a, an hour of media consulting here and you can give her an hour of financial modeling consulting uh, or an hour of supply chain consulting or however you would like to do it. And, uh, and in fact, tax, she- tax structuring for international project development. If anybody out there loves tax structuring, go to Earthspark International Network and please get in touch. You know, what's funny is you didn't know this, but the next question I usually ask is how can the Suncast audience help? So we've got the giving, but if you are a specialist at international tax structuring, please contact Allison and, uh, and, or contact me and I'll connect you. Allison, let's end today, this epic journey as we usually do with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking as we run into headlong into 2021? What's in your crystal ball? Oh, dare we say that we've learned something in 2020 and this pause and set of challenges has enabled us to think more clearly about what it is we want to be doing Mm -hmm. um, as a society. And maybe we can dismantle not only racism, but also a lot of the forces that have been keeping people down. That's my big hope. That's my big hope. We'll keep working at it. Well, as you keep working at it, we will be following the chronicles of Earth Spark and Spark Meter and participant power and all the other ways that you spin off profitable organizations into the world here on Suncast. Allison Archambault is the executive director for more than a decade now of Earth Spark international you can find out more about earthspark and all the fantastic ways that they are contributing to the world at earthsparkinternational.org allison thank you for being on suncast thank you very much nico all right family so glad that you've stuck around till the end thank you so much for giving us your time today that's a wrap with my conversation here with allison i really enjoyed that allison thank you for your time for your intention and for the amazing work that you do. You inspire me. And I know that more than a few in the Suncast tribe are also going to be inspired. Again, I'll acknowledge that if you have not tuned in yet to the sister episode that published today, all about Giving Tuesday, please take a moment and go check it out. It's 10 or 15 minutes well worth your attention. 
And I'd like to encourage you to take an opportunity. Go to earthsparkinternational.org and give from your treasure now that you've given from your time. It doesn't have to be EarthSpark, but I would like to encourage our tribe to be the giving kind, to be the folks in the world who give back and who focus on providing and producing rather than consuming. In this time, as we head into the holidays and as we're coming out of Black Friday and Cyber Monday, a lot of folks get it backwards and upside down. I'm so grateful for people like Allison who liberate folks from darkness, quite literally, and who provide such an amazing opportunity for feminist electrification in a place as often destitute, but so beautiful as Haiti. Thank you, Allison. Thank you for EarthSpark and all the work that you guys are doing. Look forward to the conversations forthcoming with the Spark Meter team. I look forward to your feedback on this episode. Would you go find us on LinkedIn and let us know what you thought of this interview? If you really think that it's worth sharing, then the kindest thing that you can do to let us know that you're listening is actually to share it to your network on LinkedIn. I'd be so grateful. And if you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find all the resources and highlights that we've discussed, not just in this, but in every episode, along with social media links, book recommendations, and so much more at the blog at mysuncast.com. Click on the listen button. You can scroll through any of the episodes there. Secret, if you scroll all the way to the bottom of the homepage, you can search, keyword search for any episode you'd like, including this one. I hope that you'll join us on Thursday for our interview with Austin Rosenbaum of Demand IQ and learn how AI and automation is changing the landscape of lead generation for residential and commercial installers in the United States. And remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.